0: See you and I, together, forever, in
1: love. Welcome back, everyone. For today, I'm actually joined with Anton, where we're going to discuss Philip Jeffries. I'll hand over the mic so he can introduce himself further.
0: Okay, hi. Uh, My name is Anton, and lifelong fan of Twin Peaks. Uh, Also, uh, lifelong fan of David Bowie. Uh, So I felt uh, talking about Philip Jeffries might be a good idea. I guess you might need to know what I do. I haven't quite ever worked out what that is but I think uh, the best best word and most pretentious word uh, would be dramaturge so my background is in drama and uh, I'm a writer and I was an actor and I ran theatre companies Uh, I now work primarily uh, on a small scale doing close-up magic so I work a lot at parties weddings that kind of thing just doing showing off with cards and coins and stuff uh and i also have a, a stage show well i've done a number of stage shows uh involving magic where i try to combine the tricks with a kind of narrative because uh for me it gets a little boring just standing on a stage doing a trick then another trick and then look at me so i try to um couch it or frame it in some kind of a story or narrative. And the last show I did, which was called The Secrets of Jack Roulette, uh, were, it had a kind of um, Lynchian, if I'm allowed to use that word, theme or mood to it. Uh, it was set in a, a Las Vegas casino uh, or bar or cabaret bar. And I was playing a kind of 1960s uh, stage magician who's lost his beautiful assistant. And it was also combined as an experiment with some uh, animated film, which my wife, Sally, who you always uh, remember from doing her Audrey Horne episode of uh, Cream Corn and the Universe. Sally is a filmmaker and animator. So as an experiment, we we tried to combine our two disciplines and we produced a show that combined stagecraft, magic, and pre-recorded film had to kind of be there to see it as i say i also write uh, i've written articles on twin peaks which you can see on the um 25 years later website and i've also written uh, extensively on doctor who uh, which is another passion of mine that's all i have to say about myself and i think that's quite enough
1: so i guess to start off with Philip jeffries i think the most important part that stands out to me about his character is that I think of the first scene in the Philadelphia office when we see Cooper walk in and he goes up to Gordon Cole's desk and he says, it's 10, 10 a.m. on February 16th. The things that stand out to me are how 10 is like the number of completion through like what is confirmed through season three. And also the fact that Cooper looks borderline sickly, at least for Gordon Cole, I always took it as he seemed like he was a little more prepared than Cooper was with the way he nods. I wasn't sure just based off of what we know about this info, just like from the, in terms of the numerology or the body language of the two, did you have a takeaway on what this said about Philip Jeffries and does it set a precedent for his character for the rest of uh, of his iterations?
0: Uh, yeah, I think it's as well to think about uh, what Philip Jeffries signifies As a character within the narrative. So I think Philip Jeffries, like Laura Palmer, is an absent presence within the narrative of Twin Peaks. So, so, you know, he's like more powerful in his absence from the action uh, and his disappearances and appearances and machinations uh, position him as, as pivotal to the story. Jeffrey's, like all the Lodge entities, and I think we can count him in a way as a a Lodge entity, or someone who's become a Lodge entity, which is interesting in its own way. Jeffrey's inhabits dreams. The first time we see him is is like as a manifestation or, or a realization of Cooper's dream, as you say. And then later we see this dream again in The Return within a recovered memory of another dream by Gordon Cole. And then... Ultimately, the proof that he was there at all is just the image on the TV screen, on the surveillance screen in the corridor, (laughs) which to me is interesting because, of course, it's ultimately the only proof any of us have of any of these characters' existence is because they inhabit our TV screens and then our dreams. And Jeffreys seems to inhabit liminal spaces like hotels, motels, elevators, corridors, And these liminal spaces act as portals, um, and and there are other spaces which also act as gates in Twin Peaks, like the the Great Northern, the various motels, the Dutchman's, the the Fat Trout Trailer Park, 2240 Sycamore, where William Hastings encounters the floating head of Garland Briggs and and other entities. So, yeah, uh, Jeffries is a, a character who comes and goes, and seems to be able to come and go, uh, if not at will, then, well, perhaps at will, but with a little bit of difficulty. And uh, as we see in his first appearance, it it seems that he actually finds it quite painful to manifest. And going to, like, number 10, being the number of completion, I was looking at the uh, Benjamin Mackey's Tarot, uh, Twin Peaks Tarot deck. He depicts Philip Jeffries as part of the Major Arcana card 10, which is the wheel of fortune. And and put as simply as I can, this card symbolizes the kind of chaotic randomness of the universe and and depicts the turning wheel of life. Its symbolism to ancient practices of sacrifice, of death and rebirth. I don't know if Mackie, I suspect Mackie probably knows enough about Tarot because all the characters that he depicts seem to be right. They're in the right place in the deck. So I think he probably knows his stuff. But Jeffrey's appearance uh, to the Blue Rose team in 1989 occurs in February, uh, and that's near the end of winter, and it initiates the events that culminate in the, if you like, in the sacrifice of Laura Palmer uh, and the hubristic quest and eventual fall of Dale Cooper. So that kind of fits with the Wheel of Fortune card, uh, which also symbolises reincarnation, uh, where one can sequentially experienced many lives and I was looking at, at the so I, I looked up what the symbolism on the on the um white Coleman Smith deck is which, which is what Benjamin Mackey has based his cards on on those designs. Jeffrey's occupies the position given to Horus the Egyptian god of resurrection on, on that, in that deck and uh, in this depiction he's shown as above the wheel So suggesting that some communion with a higher sphere, perhaps the unconscious world of dreams, uh, reveals some esoteric knowledge that transcends the mundane round of meaningless events, which is real life. So the number 10, which you brought up, as Gordon Cole tells us, is the number of completion. Yeah, I guess it's significant that in in the Twin Peaks mythos, if such a thing exists, Jeffries is there as a guide and gatekeeper from the world of dreams. At the beginning and at the end of Cooper's Quest. So yeah, 10, 10 is important.
1: Do you think that there's something about the duality of it being 10-10, that there's something that builds off of that in terms of uh, worry factors in in terms of the esoteric aspects?
0: Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Because any any number repeated twice has gotta be, you know, why? ten ten? I mean, I guess the other reason for making it 10-10, it's quite a, a balanced image. Uh, and you'll often find if you look at if you look at this is my background in graphic design from many years ago coming up. But if you look at ad, adverts, uh, commercials for watches, they're usually set at 10 past 10 because that's aesthetically a pleasing way to to have the hands. So could be that. Uh, but yeah, 10 10, saying a number twice, uh, you know, definitely amplifies its power.
1: That was my big takeaway, was how if 10 is the number of completion according to Cooper in part 17, then that has to mean something extra special about Jeffries. if there's like two tens, But I guess before we go too much further into the Philadelphia office scene, it's probably good to go through the origins of Philip Jeffries. and this is, we're going to be going through the Mark Frost books, and even a little bit of what Albert brings up in season three. So he starts off as an only son of an old aristocratic Virginia family, he was a phenomenally talented law enforcement officer, and according to Goran Cole, the world is not enough for him. I'll come back to it in a little bit, but I kind of wonder if this fate kind of parallels Cooper's, just because they're both FBI agents that go missing, and they both kind of have that similar type of aspect of they have to do it in a very certain way. But he did do his bureau training at Quantico with Goran Cole, where the both of them graduate the top of their class in 1968, and then in 1975, there was the Lois Duffy case where Lois uh, is killing the doppelganger who says, "I'm like the Blue Rose." Before she died and disappeared. Also, it, later on in the events of the Secret History, in particular, Cole and Jeffries they investigate this. Uh, in, uh, yeah, they investigate this in Olympia, Washington, and this is what leads to the Blue Rose Task Force, in particular. Uh, was there anything about Philip Jeffries' origins that kind of coincide or even contradict with what you uh, what you? uh found in your research
0: yeah what what i really found interesting is to try and draw some parallel between bowie as a performer and what bowie's most famous for is the fact that he changes persona for, for each yeah pretty much for each album he released he would come up with a different character. And, and uh, he said in many interviews that he was always reluctant to be himself on stage and felt more com- comfortable playing a character. I was looking at the secret history, yeah, and and, and looking at, on, p- on page 311, there's this letter to Dougie Milford uh, regarding the secret installation on Blue Pine Ridge related to President Reagan's strategic defence initiative, SDI Star Wars. And that's dated 1983. And that coincides with Bowie's album *Let's Dance*, uh, which was a very successful album, but began a period of sort of low creativity for Bowie. I mean, I, I love Bowie's creativity, but I, and you know, even I have to say, *Let's Dance* and subsequent albums for a, for a good while he kind of lost it, and he was just churning stuff out or or sometimes not even churning anything out because he just wasn't feeling creative. And that was because he felt that he had to pander his music to his newly acquired audience. So Let's Dance was his first big hit uh, in America, I understand. Uh, He was much more known in the UK and Europe. And that led to his albums Tonight in 1984 and Never Let Me Down in 1987. Uh, being critically dismissed really and then he later in interviews i was reading he reflected very poorly on this period referring it (laughs) referring to it as his phil collins years he tells this story of like being on stage and looking out and it was a big stadium gig in somewhere in the states in midwest and he looked out at this huge crowd and and thought oh well i'm playing to phil collins audience here what am i doing So this letter to Dougie Milford is signed by Gordon Cole and and Philip Jeffries. It's led me to think, was Philip Jeffries perhaps the FBI man tasked with surveillance on Dougie Milford and Blue Pine Ridge? And I was kind of drawing a parallel between Bowie's creative obsession with space, Starman, Hello Space Boy. uh, So many of his records are about aliens, uh, uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, the first movie he made. Yeah. And Philip Jeffries went through bureau training at Quantico with Gordon Cole, we find out. Uh, and they graduated as the top two agents in their class of 1968, which coincides with Bowie's first success, which was the single space oddity in uh, in the UK. And, and that was released coincidentally, actually, in at the same time as the Apollo Eleven moon landing and the BBC over uh, in England at the time uh, when the UK used it as their kind of theme tune for their coverage of the space and and that's pretty much what propelled Bowie into the public eye. Uh, a little, unfortunately, because then he got known as a a one hit wonder or, or a you know a novelty record uh, merchant, and he didn't really have a hit for a few years after that. So 1968, he graduates and Bowie releases Space Oddity. Uh, 20 years later Jeffries disappeared without a trace while on assignment in Buenos Aires and that coincides with yeah the, the album Never Let Me Down which is arguably Bowie's worst album and after which he effectively retired and went to live in Switzerland with Iman then Jeffries makes his sudden reappearance in 1989 in Philadelphia followed by another disappearance which coincides uh, with him deciding that he didn't want to be a solo artist, he wanted to be just a part of a band, and he forms Tin Machine, which is a, his attempt at, at being this kind of uh, 90s grunge band. Uh, and hilariously, you know, he just want, he wanted, in interviews, he was saying, no, no, interview the whole band. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> but you're David <dead> Poppy. <laughs> no one wants to interview the rest of the band. But um, you could, if you wanted to be facetious, uh, make some connection with Tin Machine, and Philip Jeffrey's final form, <laughs> which is as a, a metal, well, people call it a kettle. David Lynch disputes that. Uh, uh, I, found, I found a quote where David Lynch says he's he's sorry he made that spout that shape, because it, it was just meant to be a bit of machinery and it turned out to be that shape. In the extras on the on the box set, there's a bit with David Lynch actually carving it out of polystyrene and laughing. <laughs> so you know, we know he has a sense of humour. But yeah, coinciding with Bowie's career, you, you can kind of do that. I mean, I don't know what uh, what that tells us. But but other than the fact that as an actor, I think Bowie made a few movies, but he also always seemed to be portraying an aspect of himself, which what not to say that he was a bad actor and could only play himself, because who was, in the cliches, who is David Bowie? erroneously often called the uh, the chameleon of rock but i always think well that's not quite right because a chameleon blends in with its surroundings which was like exactly what bowie didn't do but what he did do when he was acting was like uh, just inhabit the character and let himself be inhabited by the character he's playing so he often certainly when he was uh, when he releases an album he plays that character offstage as well. So in interviews at the time of each album, Station to Station, in interviews he's playing the Thin White Duke, uh, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, and Diamond Dogs, which are a kind of trilogy. He's playing Aladdin. Uh, he's playing Ziggy Stardust and then Aladdin Sane in interview. I think just because it amused him, but I think it amused him as an artist to see what... It's almost like he's channeling this character. It's what he does with Thomas Jerome Newton in uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which was a a canny piece of casting by Nicholas Rowe because, you know, Bowie doesn't have... At that point, didn't really have to do much to look like an alien. But, you know, he's also in The Hunger. He's in uh, Labyrinth. Uh, He plays Nikola Tesla in um, Prestige, completely immerses himself in that part, particularly he doesn't look like himself at all. So there are multiple iterations of David Bowie and there's also multiple if- iterations of uh, Cooper. Dale Cooper, Dougie, Mr. C, Richard. Uh, and there's multiple iterations of Diane. Diane, the Tulpa, Nido. There's Wyndham Earl taking on different characters. There's Catherine and Mr. Tojimura. And even, uh, well, Donna kind of becomes a different character every episode. I don't know if that's deliberate or it's just the writers didn't have any continuity going on there. Audrey kind of tries to become Cooper at one point. Uh and then, and then of course Laura Maddy, which is the you know the classic uh, Hitchcock blonde brunette thing that uh, Lynch I don't think Lynch quite knew what he wanted to do with that other than than have a blonde and a brunette played by the same actress. Uh, and I think I guess it was when he realized uh, Cheryl Lee could act. Yeah, so there's multiple there's multiple iterations of a lot of characters. So Bowie fits right in there, but he does look like in that white suit. Uh, he does look like he's kind of walked off stage from the him on tour, with, in his Phil Collins stages. Like, yeah, is he playing? Is he just playing himself? But um, yeah, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that.
1: I guess since we're mentioning the suit in particular, the one thing that stands out to me about it is that when he said that, uh, the whole analogy that people say he blends in like a chameleon, but you look at that same firewalk with me, and he's the one that stands out like a sore thumb. Like, everyone's wearing, like, their FBI suits, and then not only is his suit white, but he has, like, the Hawaiian shirt underneath. Since, you know, this kind of ties into the 80s and with Buenos Aires, um, I guess before we get into that, though... Um, I guess we'll go through a little more about the secret history because we were mentioned briefly about how in May of 83, Carl Rodd was the one who wrote a letter to Dwayne Milford because he was concerned about the construction on Blue Pine Mountain. And Dougie Milford, quote unquote, encouraged Dwayne uh, to contact the FBI about it. And this is when Gordon Cole and Philip Jeffries visit Twin Peaks not long after. They both conduct a, quote unquote, thorough investigation and a uh, submit a report on May 28th this report confirms that they contacted major briggs uh the super the project supervisor which is true and then uh this project is pertained to the like we mentioned before the uh, sti slash star wars and uh it's explicitly stated that's supposed to be confidential to dwayne milford and dwayne milford only and then uh, the blue pine project is uh, up and running come november of 83. was there anything else about this aspect of philip jeffries that pertain to anything to the esoteric or the occultic
0: um the white suit uh is interesting because i don't it's got connotations to me i don't know if you'd agree with this of like southern Southern gent kind of plantation sort of um so that kind of to me says uh, bear in mind i'm english so i don't know what i'm talking about with american history but or geography even but uh, to me that that connotes um colonialism uh and, and also it, it, it's the it's the uniform of of the colonial kind of plantation owner or or uh is that kind of Tennessee williams thing out on a hot tin roof or uh what's the other one the glass menagerie that kind of very hot steamy i mean uh, bear in mind i guess he's supposed to be he's been teleported from Buenos Aires. So that could be his like tropical kit. But I think there's more to it than that. I think you could also read him as as uh, a fallen angel. You can read that white suit as being kind of transcendental, which, which yeah, may be Lucifer in uh, Neil Gaiman's a Sandman, uh, or... Probably more to the point. This may be, I mean, I don't know if Bowie chose the outfit or Dave Lynch chose it or just the wardrobe department chose it. I don't know. I couldn't find any details on that. But as a negative image of the FBI look, it works really well. Uh, As you say, it's like everyone else in the Blue Rose Task Force wears, uh, including Tammy Preston, thinking about it, is the classic black suit and tie which was later kind of co-opted by Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and then the X-Files. And then, of course, you got the whole Men in Black thing and the Men in Black movies. So it, it became a kind of a ubiquitous cliche, and it does say, it, it, yeah, it says these are guys who are seriously investigating some weird shit. And Bowie, <laughs> he's investigating some weird shit, but in a different way. So, yeah, I like the idea of looking at it as a he's kind of a negative photograph of the FBI man. And that's probably, I'd like to talk a bit here about uh, his accent. So he's got this, which even I could tell is like a pretty bad Southern accent as Philip Jeffries uh, in Firewalk With Me. And he pitches it somewhere between, you know, one of Blanche Dubois's gentleman callers in a streetcar named Desire. So again, it's that Tennessee Williams thing. Or some redneck lawman like, I don't know, Rod Steiger in, in The Heat of the Night. You know, that kind of, you know, we've all heard that kind of accent. But the thing is, Bowie, even, even a, a, a cursory look at any of his interviews, he's always totally amused by what he's doing. He's, he's got this kind of very aloof, amused uh, manner, and he likes a joke. And he was also a consummate mimic. There are many instances of him really flawlessly mimicking. There's a really good clip I found on YouTube. It's only audio, but he's in, it's an outtake from him in the studio recording something or other. And he just, for a laugh, goes through the same song as Iggy Pop, Bruce Springsteen, Lou Reed. I think he does Dylan. Uh, just flawlessly. He could do voices. He could easily have done a convincing Southern accent or New York accent or Philadelphia accent. He lived a lot of time in New York. So you have to ask, why does he do this weird, fake accent? And was it a choice? And was it a choice? And if it was, why? So I think maybe it was to highlight the unreality of the scene, of the character, the dream I mean, he could also be making a, a some comment on alienation or slavery or colonialism, like I said. But what's interesting is you probably know that David Bowie was approached to reprise his role as Jeffries in The Return. Uh, but his lawyer informed David literally he was unavailable due to his declining health, which, of course, we know was, was fatal in it. This wasn't public knowledge until his, his actual death on January the 10th, 2016. But Bowie gave Lynch permission to reuse footage of the character from the film. However, he was unhappy with the accent he'd used in the film. So he requested to have his voice redubbed by an authentic uh, Louisiana actor called Nathan Frizzell. Now, Bowie often revisits and modifies his performances. Uh, I've seen him live a, a number of times. Was really lucky to have seen him live and always been quite startled by the fact that he seems to have... Uh, a problem remembering his own lyrics. I mean, to be fair, he's written quite a number of them. <laughs> but he always changes the lyrics, and I think just on a whim, like, you, you'll make stuff up. He'll almost improvise lyrics sometimes. And there's a couple of albums where he really, excuse me, he revisits old songs and redoes them. So maybe his lack of concern for doing an accurate accent is uh, is just a reminder to us that the character isn't real, that we're watching a movie.
1: Oh, yeah. To come back to his scene in the Philadelphia office, I think of uh, when we first see Philip Jeffries proper, he emerges uh, from the elevator after Cooper's third attempt to stare in the camera. And the thing that I find interesting is that uh, Cooper, where he seems to be even more alarmed, and I always figure Cole, he's slightly off guard, but when he puts his hand up saying, I know Coop, it kind of implies he has control the situation. This is where we get the iconic line. And of course, there's different iterations depending on who says it, where it says, who do you think this is there? Did, did you think that anything before we cut to the room above convenience store scene, did you have any thoughts on how this, uh, what this factored in on like what Philip knew or didn't know, or better yet, what Cole knew or didn't know?
0: Yeah, um, there is that, uh, as you say, depending on what version you look at, he either says, who do you think this is there or who do you think that is there? It's clearly a reference. So Firewalk With Me was made after the season two finale, where we find out that Cooper isn't Cooper. He's what we later come to call Mr. C, but he's like the evil doppelganger of Cooper. Uh, you know, so the, we're smashing his head against the mirror and saying, how's Annie? So that that's established in the narrative. So when it comes to Bowie's reaction to Cooper to say, Who do you think that is there or this is there? Is that Mr. C? Is that not Cooper? Are are we already seeing the evil doppelganger somehow? Of course, that depends how you interpret who or what Mr. C is. But if you interpret as the kind of suppressed, dark side of Agent Cooper, it's possible that that suppressed, dark side can manifest itself sometimes and take over in in, in much the same way that Bob manifests in Leland without actually physically coming out of the Black Lodge. You know, I don't think it helps to talk about the, the kind of esoteric mechanics of how you go in and out of the lodge or, you know, what these people are. But just to speculate there that it could be that Jeffries sees Cooper and sees... Mr. C, or, or the the dark doppelganger, not Cooper. And is he seeing that because that's the last person he saw? Because we know he's been teleported to Buenos Aires, he's been doing whatever it is he's been doing. He's been to the lodge and he's been to one of their meetings above the convenience store. Has he seen dark doppelganger Cooper? So when he first sees Dale Cooper, is he mistaking him for the dark I don't think so, because he knows Agent Cooper. They've worked together. He's not going to think, oh, it's that that evil guy that I just saw in the lodge. He's going to think, oh, thank God, I'm back in Philadelphia, and there's the real Dale Cooper. So when he says, who do you think that is there? I potentially think it's because he sees the darkness.
1: One thing that stands out to me, especially after you watch season three is when Dell cooper he turns to gordon cole and he has this like he, his eyes are basically bugging out he just says gordon do you have any thoughts on what that meant like in terms of do you think cooper kind of had a sense of what this dream was or do you think that this was something that it was indicative that something terrible was about to happen
0: yeah um so you've got to kind of double down on what's actually happening here what are we seeing so jeffrey's Is first shown checking into the hotel in Buenos Aires. Oh, well, in in the missing pieces, but but anyway, let's ignore that for a minute. What we first see by what would be is Jeffries emerges from a different elevator to the one he's gone in 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 Buenos Aires at the Philadelphia FBI office. Interesting, the original uh, puts his appearance in 1988 but then you get this one year later on screen caption, So that's kind of a mistake bit as well. It's 1989. So he is believed to have disappeared two years ago, a warline assignment in Argentina. He hurries to uh, Gordon Cole's office and then he starts raving and rambling about Judy, whilst at the same time saying that they're not going to talk about Judy. And then then he tells them about where he's been and he mentions the ring and Cole tells Albert to find out how Jeffries got into the building. Then the lights are flickering. Cooper runs out. Cole tries to call for backup. And then Jeffries vanishes. What are we seeing there? Are we seeing... Because we see that scene again in The Return as Gordon Cole's recovered memory of a dream, his Monica Bellucci dream. What are we seeing there? Are we seeing... Dale Cooper's dream that he said he had about the 10th of February? Are we seeing the actual event? Are we seeing Gordon Cole's memory of it? We don't know that yet because uh, it's half- we haven't had the return yet. And then, of course, there's the way it's edited in that kind of avant-garde way. And, and, of course, as we see from the missing pieces, I guess the original intention was to show the Buenos Aires scene, then show him teleport and, and somehow end up in Philadelphia and then show him back in Buenos Aires with the burning wallpaper behind him and screaming. And I think wisely Lynch um, cuts that up and and makes it a bit more abstract and a bit more dreamlike. And there's lots of static and, uh, you know, the usual weird vibrating low bass thing on the soundtrack. And it's really, really, it's a very disturbing scene that not only reminds us that we're watching uh, once again it reminds us that we're watching uh, a movie this isn't real and lynch often does that he likes to just remind you that you know like his his attitude to special effects is is like he doesn't care whether it looks he, he would never use cgi well i mean i guess he does use cgi in episode eight quite a lot but but like he comes from a kind of almost, he certainly comes from an artistic background and it's almost like a, uh, an abstract expressionist theater attitude, which is like, you know, you can have a cardboard cutout of a tree on stage and expect the audience to understand that we're in a forest. Whereas if you're watching a movie, that kind of grammar of of film doesn't allow that. You, You have to show things as realistically as possible. And Lynch, doesn't give a shit about that. You, know, you can imagine him saying, I don't give a shit about realism. If he, if he tells you something is is what it is, you know, like, even uh, I'm thinking of, like, the uh, things like the ball coming out of uh, Mr. C's chest and with Bob's face in it. It's, like, totally weird. And it's just done in the most simple cinematic effect way that you could have done in the 1950s, let alone, you know, the 21st century. And he doesn't get... It doesn't matter... Because I think he never wants you to forget that you're watching a film. Because I think that's the, uh, we, we live in a dream. That's what he's saying with that. It's just like saying this is a story. This is a dream. It's all a dream. I mean, yeah, arguably. Is it all a dream? Is it Cooper's dream? Whose dream is it? Who's the dreamer? We don't know. But while we're watching it, it's our dream. Which David Lynch is giving us the uh, the visuals for, which you know, thank you very much for that. So yeah, the 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 unreality—it's all of that. Who do you think that is there, Gordon? That the the kind of confusion of that scene is deliberate, uh, and to try and unpick it is, I think, a mistake because because Lynch doesn't want us to unpick it. He wants us to be confused at that point.
1: One of the things you mentioned is that, uh, is when you mentioned the discrepancy of it being 1988 in the movie and then 1989 in The Missing Pieces. I was actually thinking about it as I was writing this down, but uh, I think that in, uh, if we're gonna go with, like, the theatrical cut initially, I take it as, um, as that Jeffries emerges because of Agent Desmond's disappearance. Like, I I had the sense that because, uh, Desmond takes the ring and there's that fade out, at the end of the scene, there's that part where Alfred says, uh, or no, sorry, uh, Albert says, I got the front desk. He was never here. And they they says, and news from Deer Meadow, agent Ch- Chester Desmond's disappeared. And then when you go to the, when they're reviewing the footage, they have that whole part where he was here, but where'd he go? And where is uh, Chester Desmond? So, and I think that that also coincides with uh, the fact that after he says, who do you think this is there? That's when it starts getting all staticky and it cuts to the jumping man. So I think that there's something about that, but I also think that in The Missing Pieces, because the dialogue is slightly different, and also there's alternate takes, such as the who do you think that is there, I take that as uh, that he actually does go again in 1989. The reason why I'm bringing this up is that in part 14, after the after, uh, Goran Cole talks about his Monica Bellucci dream, there's that part where Albert says, I'm beginning to remember. So I think that maybe it's not impossible that there's something about Philip Jeffries visiting at least on two occasions. And uh, it's just that they happen to forget. And there's some about the uh, Mr. C, that like evil part of Cooper, that seems to remember it. Uh, did you have any thoughts on it being potentially different realities? Because in the theatrical cut, it has one thing, but in the missing pieces, it has
0: another. You can certainly read it like that, Colin, because um, that's clearly established, although not in Firewalk with Was Me, but it's clearly established in The Return at the end there are divergent realities. There's a, there's a reality where uh, Laura Palmer wasn't killed. So the, it's certainly a possibility that Jeffrey's, uh, that we're seeing two different versions of the same scene in two different realities. I, I, absolutely, I could buy that. But you know, at the same time, I could also buy, and the two aren't mutually exclusive, but I could also buy the fact that they're just two different dreams. So they're two different memories Of what actually happened, and this it reminds me of when I do my shows. There's a magician or or an illusionist I really like, British uh, guy called Darren Brown. I don't know, you might have heard of him, but he does uh, kind of very cool, like mentalism stuff. And you know, he can actually persuade you that you've seen something happen on stage that didn't happen at all. Amazing, but he said uh, in one of his books that. as far as he's concerned the magic that he does the illusions that he performs happen in the bar in the theater bar afterwards when people are talking about it because he says he sometimes eavesdrops on like the conversation of people who've just seen his show and he says what they actually describe that they saw happening is nothing like what he actually did. And he says, sometimes I wish I'd done what they said, because it gets exaggerated in the telling. And of course, you know, outside of that, when you're telling people, Oh, I saw this amazing magician, oh, I've had this as well. You know, people who said, Oh, I love that bit where you and, and I go, I didn't actually do that. People embellish it because they want you to be great. They want to tell their friends, Oh, I saw this amazing magician. And he did he made an elephant disappear. No, he didn't. And it's not that I've made it look like an elephant's disappear. I've, no one's ever thought I've made an elephant disappear. But you know, what I mean, it's you know, people want to tell their friends that they've seen something amazing, and so often in the telling, there's a kind of Chinese whispers thing that goes on that it just gets embellished and embellished. So what we're seeing in the Philip Jeffries in Philadelphia scene is is a retelling of a dream. And it's a reenactment of a dream or it's an enactment of a dream. So, you know, maybe the first time we're seeing the dream, the second time we're seeing what really happened. Or maybe in The Missing Pieces, we're seeing what really happened. Or maybe we're never seeing what really happened. And like I said, the, uh, the only evidence that's left of Philip Jeffries ever being there is his image on the TV screen, which I think is Lynch just saying, that's all you're ever going to get. That's the only evidence that any of this happened.
1: And coming to the idea of it being a dream, I, I do think this is a uh, place emphasis on the Philip Jeffries scene in part 14 when uh, that's when we have the uh, the new voice actor uh, with uh, you said the Louisiana voice actor with a more proper southern accent. I took that as that's the uh, basically Cole. He's starting to remember it, but it's not entirely reliable. And that's not exactly what really happened. So I think a lot of it is that I think of, like, with a lot of the characters where there's that certain subjectivity where they can remember enough, but not all the proper details. And, uh, I mean, of course, you know, going through that Monica Bellucci scene, that's, like, one of many parts. But I do think of it, because I know I think Take the Ring, I think he believes that it happens at least three times. But I do maintain that I think uh, that Jeffrey's visits in 1988 because of Chester Desmond's disappearance. Uh, One thing I want to mention about his 1989 visit in The Missing Pieces is that there's a part where Bob is uh, insinuated in Jeffrey's appearance because there's that close-up of his mouth coming out with Bob laughing. And that's when he shoots back to uh, Argentina in 1987. And uh, another thing that's worth mentioning about The Missing Piece is that his scene in Buenos Aires, when he checks in the hotel and goes to the elevator, it cuts to the room above the convenience store, just completely uncut. And then it ends with, um, you know, with Laura Palmer being superimposed in the Black Lodge. And the very next scene is uh is jeffrey's re-emerging so i actually think that there's something about jeffrey's if we're going with the missing pieces aspect where there's something where he's tied into the laura palmer murder or her being saved because you know you know he looks as mayday 1989 and i think there's just something about him showing up a week before her death that i think is uh is more implicated in the missing pieces if we're to assume that these are two different dates
0: yeah well Let's not forget, and we're probably going to go into this a little bit more, that uh, Jeffries has a kind of higher role to play other than, like, the missing FBI man. He's a little bit more than Chet Desmond. He's the guy that went in and came out again to report on what he found. And he's also the guy that potentially, it suggested, has, has gone over to their side. Or is playing some very clever double game. So let's let's skip a li- uh, for a while to the the return uh, when Mister C is uh, sort of interrogating Ray, and he gets him to put the, the ring on, and he says, "Where did you get the ring?" And the guard gave it to him. Some anonymous guard gave it to him at, at the jail, and then. Ray goes where is Philip Jeffries and Ray goes I don't know and he goes where is Philip Jeffries last I heard he was at a place called the Dutchman's but it's not a real place going back to like who, who do you think that is there his appearance is one week before Laura Palmer's death uh, on February 23rd so it implies that even before Twin Peaks begins as I said, Cooper may not be who he appears to be, or he may be already be manifesting this darkness. And these few days, the, this, this week, in between Jeffrey's appearing and Laura's death, are kind of pivotal. Uh, they're, they're, the, they're the fulcrum on, on which the whole Twin Peaks universe turns. As far as we're concerned, this is the most important week, uh, and it's the week that Cooper eventually goes back to to try to change it. and when Laura's killed and and part of Dale Cooper's personality splits off for himself, um, it happens in, in that little time span. And the two events are connected just not only chronologically, but, but causally. And I'm, I'm thinking of Fred in Lost Highway and Diane in Mulholland Drive, the way they can be two people at the same time. And in those movies that, you know, that's the kind of lynch, that's to suggest there's a, a kind of lynch verse, you know, but, but, There's no Black Lodge in the other movies, so we have to kind of assume that Lynch assumes that you can just become other characters randomly. I think to understand Twin Peaks, it often helps to approach it from a a particular angle and view it through a lens uh, and I'm not suggesting any direct links or connections, but I'm just pulling at threads, really, unravelling it. So it could be helpful to imagine that all of David Lynch's works, uh, with, including his paintings, his short films, his audio recordings, TV shows, and his movies, all take place in a, in a coherent and exclusive world separate from our own, but a world that we're allowed to witness uh, and be affected by, but as passive observers. And there's a lot of Passive observation goes on into a piece. There's a lot of people spying on each other and just looking or being voyeuristic. And, and, and so I know that the, the concept of a David Lynch shared cinematic universe is arguable, but you know, just a cursory viewing of, of Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway, Wild at Heart, Inland Empire, particularly my favourite movie, suggests that at least there's certain imagery, certain themes and emotive tropes, even obsessions that are of interest to Lynch. And every now and then, Lynch... I think this is interesting. Lynch allows for incursions from other spheres just to enrich his creativity. And most often we see these incursions from the area of music. And so it's difficult to imagine Twin Peaks without hearing Angelo Badlamenti, for instance. Like when we went to visit, when, when Sally and I went to Army we're standing in front of the falls and you can just hear Angelo Badlamenti's theme. You don't need it uh, played to you. Some, someone actually put it on, he had it on, on his uh, phone and he was trying to play it to us. I was like, no, you don't need it. I can hear it. But in the case of David Bowie playing Philip Jeffries, we've got to ask whether Lynch was prepared to allow another artist's universe of symbols and imagery to intrude on his own. It's not simply a case of casting a, a popular singer in an acting role like he did with Chris Isaac in Firewater Me or Krista Bell in The Return. Bowie comes with his own creative baggage. Which could have threatened to overwhelm a, a lesser artist than Lynch, but Philip Jeffrey's uh, appearance—it's brief, but but it's really potent. It's full of allusions and hints towards the the greater world beyond the main plot, and the and the the enigmatic Judy, of course, who we're not going to talk about, is a prime example. But we could talk about Judy. I've got something to say about Judy. If you want to go for that.
1: I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like we brought the bulk of what we need for the Philadelphia scene. So I think it's good to move to the final dossier because Tammy, at least in her writing, she confirms that the Jeffries Philadelphia mean was in 1989. To go with Argentina, that he started his work in 1986, but was fixated on Judy after his work on an international criminal enterprise. Not sure if that necessarily pertains to a certain, like, I don't know, like, organized crime in the mid-80s, but Tammy found, uh, Day, J-O-U-D-Y, carved on the wall of his hotel room, and she wonders what set him off, and if there's a significance to the additional O instead of just Judy. Tammy speculates that he may or may not have lost his mind... Uh, then we were mentioning uh, Ray before that, you know, Ray thought he was working with Philip Jeffries. We'll get to that once we get to the return, but Tammy thinks that Jeffries is untethered. Um, yeah. I think that's it for anything pertaining to Argentina. Do you have anything else to say about Argentina at large or how Judy factored into
0: it? Not particularly that uh, well, there's, there's an interesting thing that um, Sally pointed out that I, I hadn't noticed Um when he, in the missing pieces, uh, when you see him reappear screaming in front of that scorched wall in Buenos Aires, uh, and he's watched by the, the I guess we call him a bellhop, and there's a woman carrying on the floor, and Jeffrey's just going, What? And then the man has his line, uh, Oh, the shit comes out my asshole. Santa Maria, where did you go? And, and it sounds like he's saying, Ayuda man. He's not. He's saying in Spanish, Ayuda me, help me. Did you know
1: that? Yeah, that was one where I remember just stumbling across it at random one night where people were speculating if it's, are you the man? And then someone confirmed like Spanish, like, no, that means help me, which I think adds an extra nefarious aspect to that. Because I i mean, to be fair, not nothing, nothing to insinuate that Philip Jefferson himself is nefarious. It's just that you're a bellhop and then this man just emerges and is scorched and screaming. Like naturally someone's going to be not really in the best place and would likely want to call for help for
0: that. Indeed. And it's a lovely example of Lynch, of Lynch kind of bringing realism to something that's just totally fantastical. Like, you know, a guy disappears. You're taking a guy's, uh, you're just doing your job in the Buenos Aires Hotel. You're taking a guy's luggage up to his room and he suddenly disappears and then he reappears. And as far as this bellhop's concerned, I guess he reappears immediately immediately. Like he's gone and then he comes back because they're on the stairs. You know, he's like, we've got his cases there. So as far as he's concerned, he blinks out and then blinks back again, but on fire perhaps, or the wall behind him is on fire. And he's like freaking out, which brings me to something that I hadn't really considered before till I was watching this. So Jeffreys disappears for 20 years. Is it No, how many oh, years is it?
1: I think what it is is that I believe it's in part three it's when, uh, it's that it's that scene where it has that blue filter where Tammy goes in the diner, and Albert, he talks about how uh, he's kept this secret from Gordon for a long time, where he thought there was a man named Philip called, like, you know, say uh, that he needed help or something. And then the man that they were talking about in that phone call, he was killed not long after. And that's where we don't really know. And there's a lot about Philip Jeffries that we'll get into with The Return, where... We're not sure of, like, one, what his motives are. And in some cases, Ben, who asks if it's even Philip in some parts.
0: Yeah, I, I, I've got some thoughts about that. But what I'm thinking is, like, like it's the long last Philip Jeffries. Now, how long has he been lost?
1: Yeah, Gordon says, like, you've been gone for two years, Philip, but there is a very omnipresent quality to him. Uh, even just, like, the way he acts, it's like, I mean, even just from the first time watching that there's something off and unnerving. So. Even if Gordon says two years, it could mean something else, like certainly for Philip in particular.
0: But what it means for, for from our point of view is the fact that when he disappears from the Buenos Aires Hotel, that's not when he disappears for two years because he goes back immediately. As far as the bellhop's concerned, he just blinks out and blinks back again on fire. So he must have disappeared again at some later point. Or maybe he goes again. You know, maybe he just... because. The Philip Jeffries that turns up in Philadelphia is a Philip Jeffries that's been to one of their meetings above the convenience store. Uh, when was that? And or you know, perhaps, perhaps it hasn't happened yet because time it's slippery in here. You know, time is meaningless in the lodges. So maybe he's describing something that hasn't happened yet.
1: I'm thinking in Fire Walk with me. I remember for a long time, I thought there was a vague connection of Philip Jeffries with the jumping man. Because I always thought there was something about when uh, when everything starts going to static and it cuts to the jumping man, that's when you hear the voice, the uh, David Bowie's voice saying, "I've been to one of their meetings." And you look at a lot of them, and it's clearly like the only one who's masked is the jumping man. I thought, like, oh, maybe there's something about like this guy who's hidden in plain sight, who's moving around more than anyone else. Because you know they're talking about he's talking about how they just sat there in the missing pieces, how they're sitting there for hours not really saying anything and uh, so i just thought there was some about that fade in with the jumping man and it was really until i saw the superimposed sarah palmer face on the jumping man part 15 where i thought okay i really need to reevaluate this but yeah i wasn't sure if you had any thoughts on because i i the one i see people say and it's the next one that would make the most sense if we're kind of coinciding with both scenes is that they think that when uh pierre Tremont he puts on the paper machine mask takes it off and you see half of the monkey face that's revealed and one thing that would reaffirm that is that at the end of Firewalk Me, after Laura once again coming to Philip being prominent, with the missing pieces part of uh, of like Laura come, you know, he he comes in a week before Laura's killed, and then right when her body's being unwrapped in the pilot, uh, we get that scene Firewalk Me where as she's being unwrapped, it cuts to the monkey saying Judy. So yeah, I wasn't sure if there again there's just so much about Philip where if, like if you're looking at multiple timelines. It's really hard to kind of know where to pull the thread and where to, you know, where to uh, go from there.
0: Sure, and and again, as I said, that's kind of deliberate. That's just Lynch being, you know, not deliberately obtuse, but he just doesn't want to give us all the answers because he wants us to bring our own angle. Like I said, you know, it helps when you're when you're discussing Lynch to come at it from a specific angle. Uh, you know, to bring something of yourself to it. And that's what he wants. Like, we're you know, missing pieces. We're the missing pieces. The audience are the missing pieces. We bring whatever intelligence. That's like, you know, when I read so many, as I'm sure you do, people uh, online say, I've absolutely, I've got it. I've worked it out. I know what Twin Peaks is about. And yeah, all right. I don't mind that. As long as they don't say my theory overrides any other theories because everyone's theory is valid uh you know everyone it's it's made uh, because he comes primarily to his work uh, as an artist it's made to be discussed it's made to be analyzed it's made to be interpreted it's not made it's not a jigsaw puzzle that you can put together and go ah, oh, there you go it's finished done i know what that's about
1: I think the next part, and this is where it gets really dicey. When our first iteration that we see of Philip Jeffries, or hear of Philip Jeffries, is in part two. It's right after Mr. C kills Daria, and uh, he opens up the, what looks like, I mean, obviously it's it's modern technology, but it looks like it's similar to the suitcase that uh, Wyndham Earl had in part in, in the original series. But the thing is that he opens it, and he hears a voice, and Cooper asks Philip, voice says, you're late. Uh, Mr. C says, couldn't be helped then philip jeffrey says i miss you in new york i see you're still in buckhorn uh mr c says and you're still nowhere is that correct and the interesting part where this starts to change is that he says uh philip says you met with major garland briggs and then mr c asks how do you know that philip and then philip uh, says actually i just called to say goodbye the mr c asks, this is philip jeffrey's right The last line from Philip says, you're going back in tomorrow and I'll be with Bob again. And then that's it. Yeah, once I revisited this scene, I went through multiple different uh, interpretations of who this could be. Like I spent like at least a day just constantly thinking about this because the thing I found interesting is that I always thought it was Philip, but the fact that the Twin Peaks wiki has Philip Jeffrey's imposter as a completely separate entity. And then I was thinking of like what other characters would know because coming back to the line in particular where the line is, you're going back in tomorrow and I'll be with Bob again. I thought I was like, well, that would have to make sense with Judy because the whole, the unity of Bob and Judy and what that would mean for the world. Uh, At least if we're going with Tammy in the final dossier. But I also thought about is that, I think it might actually be Major Briggs himself that this is like a total red herring to kind of spring Mr. C into a trap of sorts. Because the whole idea of, one, going back in the Black Lodge and then being having Bob separate from him, that's like the last thing Mr. C wants. But then we get to part 17 where when Mr. C goes to Twin Peaks, he finds himself in was the White Lodge. And we see that head of Major Briggs and Mr. C's in a cage and the fireman shifts it from the Palmer home to uh, the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. And uh, I think that's obviously where the showdown happens. That's where everything goes awry for Mr. C. He gets killed by Lucy. So I think that a lot of this was actually Major Briggs. He actually was springing this whole trap this whole time. This whole thing was just uh, to kind of lead Mr. C into that tra- set trap.
0: Possibly. But another... okay. well, there's two ways of looking at this. One um, could be Major Briggs. But Major Briggs has got quite a distinctive voice. Maybe not when he's dead. I don't know. But going back to what I said earlier about, you know, was Philip Jeffries the FBI man that was tasked with surveillance of Blue Pine Ridge and Major Briggs? He's working with Briggs, clearly, from within the Lodge now, Secondly, two Coopers, two Dianes. It's possible there are two Philip Jeffries. There's no reason to suspect, not to suspect that uh, Philip Jeffries also has a dark doppelganger, just like Cooper does. And one of them is working with Mr. C and the other one isn't. I mean, it, it, there's even, I think there's some ambiguity about whether the little man from another place is two separate characters because sometimes he seems to be helping cooper and sometimes he seems to not be and then particularly when he's the evolution of the arm there's the evil version of him and the good version as jeffrey says it's slippery in here so you can't pin anything down but i've always read it as um there's a Philip Jeffries. That, well, there's either two Philip Jeffreys, or Philip Jeffreys is working a very, very dangerous and tricky game of playing both sides off against each other.
1: Now they mentioned the all the early stuff about Philip Jeffreys, if it was or wasn't him. When Mr. C goes to the Dutchman's, this is where, of course, he goes to the room above the convenience store. Uh, then he goes to, uh, do you, actually, do you ever think that because it's the Mount Sai Motel, the same one that Leland visits in Fire Walk with me, do you ever think there is a connection between that scene in Firewalk Me versus that being the same motel, but also it being room number eight? And also the fact that the woman has to unlock it for Mr. C?
0: I think the Motel uh is a is a, a portal. It's it's a gateway. Like I said earlier, there are many gateways and portals in Twin Peaks that lead to the lodge, to the white lodge, to the black lodge, to the waiting room. I think that's one of them. And it's possible. There are varying degrees of gateway. Uh, in other words, because I also think Beulah's uh, at the beginning in episode one of Twin Peaks, where Mr. C goes to meet Ray and Daria. That's a pretty. That's almost a Black Lodge place. Like the people there are almost lodge entities, but they're not. And I think like a. It's possible that a, a real, like in inverted commas, real location in our world can become kind of half in and half out of the Black Lodge or whatever you want to call it, the other place. Yeah, the motel, definitely. And and I, d- I think that's deliberate. There's, that's not done because they couldn't be bothered to find another location. That's done because they want to make, or Lynch wants to make that. Oh, I've got something else that occurred to me. I don't know. It's just a little aside. After Mr. C kills Ray and then he disappears, no, the ring disappears from his finger and appears in the waiting room. Uh, and then Mike picks it up and places it on the pedestal, and then we see Ray uh, appear in the in the waiting room, I guess, on the chevron floor. And I'm just wondering what this pedestal is because it turns up a few times. The only other time we see a kind of table surface is the four mica table. And then uh, it's really silly when uh, the little man says this is a four mica table. I just thought, well, wait a minute, is he saying this is 4 Mike? A table I watched it again I thought yeah yeah he is <laughs> he's saying this is for Mike A table
1: yeah that's I never that never crossed my mind about uh about no that it just action. just
0: watching it just doing just during the rewatch Colin I it just kind of thought oh wait wait a minute let me play that again um because it's just it's just the kind of silly pun that David Lynch might or Mark Frost possibly might have put in so let's see so he goes to the convenience store and he says to jeffrey so jeffrey says to him that And now we're look, we're looking at jeffrey's as this machine that pumping steam out jeffrey says oh it's you which you know again that's the same as do you know who this is there or do you know who that is there there's two coopers and jeffrey's knows that oh it's you Mr. C goes, Jeffrey. Jeffrey says, thank God. Mr. C says, why did you send Ray to kill me? Jeffrey says, what? I called Ray. So you did send him. Did you call me five days ago? I don't have your number. So it was someone else who called me. And Jeffrey says, we used to talk. Mr. C, yes, we did. When he says we used to talk, I think he's talking about him and Cooper used to talk, not him and Mister C. This is the good Jeffries who's like messing about with Mister C, and it was the bad Jeffries, or or maybe anyway. There are I'm pretty convinced there are two Philip Jeffries. One's good, and or, or or at least he can. He's playing a double game.
1: For me, the what I have written down is that Jeffries comes off as surprised about the call, but he does confirm calling Ray. One of the things I thought was also interesting is that uh, Mr. C asks about Judy, and then this is when Jeffrey proceeds to say that you've you've already met Judy.
0: Yeah, yeah he said you actually get you actually get a flashback, a little flashback to uh, you know the fire Walk with me scene, where Jeffrey's going, "Well, I'm not going to talk about Judy." And then Mr. C says, "1989, you showed up at FBI headquarters in Philadelphia and said you'd met Judy. How does Mr. C know that? He knows that because that's who it was there."
1: Yeah, uh, and again, it comes back to what I was mentioned before about the final dossier and the uh, missing pieces, about those being in 1989. Yeah, I think 1980 is being a mistake because I think if we're going to go behind the scenes for a moment, I think in the script it originally was supposed to be right before or right after Laura sees Donna for the first time in the movie. So, I mean, I guess we could just write it off, but I just think that, you know, since we have it in there, we're kind of stuck with the iterations of it being 88 and 89. But coming back to Mr. C, though, I think what I find interesting is that this is the only scene at all in the whole Season 3 where Mr. C raises his voice asking about Judy. But before that, uh, Jeffries does give him coordinates and then disappears. There's that part in part, I think it's, yeah, it's part 16 when it's Richard and Mr. C where Mr. C, he says that um one out of the three coordinates don't match and uh, he wants Richard to check this one where it's like the two out of three did indeed match. Do you think it was Jeffries that gave him the wrong coordinates or do you think it was someone else such as Ray?
0: Well, there's two lots of coordinates, isn't it? Because Jeffries gives him, he says, why don't you ask Judy yourself? Let me write it down for you. And then these numbers appear in the steam, and they're the same numbers plus a two that Diane writes into the map on her phone, which brings up the result, Twin Peaks. And also, they're the, the first five numbers are the ones tattooed on Ruth Davenport's corpse, which is where Diane gets them from. Uh, but then, so there's two lots of coordinates, and then, yeah, it's quite possible. Yeah, it's, it's very possible that Jeffrey is working with Major Briggs or Major Briggs' floating head at this point is uh, messing about with Mr. C.
1: On the topic of Major Briggs, uh, the reason why I was so ena- or, uh, enamored over the idea that that was uh, Major Briggs was the imposter. It's because in the final dossier, there's that part. It's when um, Bill Hastings and Ruth Davenport they meet the major out like by uh, out by that field. They say it's uh, I think they say it's the woodsman. But there's something where it's like whether Mr. C was there or he just sent them out, he does know about it. But there's that part where obviously Ruth Davenport, she's killed, but then the head of Major Briggs manages to escape. And uh, hence the head we see. To me, it just kind of uh, makes me think that there is something about the how Major Briggs and Philip Jeffries work alongside each other. Because it's like we're saying, the secret history establishes that they clearly... Had a connection at some point, and they've clearly worked alongside with each other. That's where I stand with everything pertaining to Mister C. Briggs and Philip Jeffries. Do you have anything else to say about this scene, Part Fifteen?
0: That's it. Just uh, yeah, I was just going to talk about the numbers uh, and and the fact that Jeffries can you know somehow he's so he's like the evolution of Jeffries, isn't it? Like the like the evolution of the arm is the evolution of the little man. It's kind of suggested that if you spend enough time in the lodge you you evolve into some kind of thing uh, rather than a human or uh, but we you know we don't know so he's he's able to manifest these numbers and then later on of course when cooper goes to see him he's able to teleport cooper back to february 23rd 1989 uh, and he does that by manifesting uh, in the steam uh, first, the owl cave symbol, and that turns into two diamonds and then into a figure eight, and then a figure eight containing a kind of bead that goes around. And Jeffries goes, there it is, you can go in now. Cooper, remember. And Mike says, electricity. Oh, that gets, takes me back to the um, the jumping man. I think the jumping man seems to symbolize electricity, You often see him and you hear that kind of crackle and you often see him with the telegraph pole with number six on it. It'll walk and cut to that. But I also think that it's the mask, not the person wearing it. And I think it's just saying something about, again, you know, uh, being able to adopt different characters. So I think whoever wears the mask, because you also see... um, the Tremond boy, in a similar mask, kind of jumping about when uh, Mrs. Tremond gives Laura the the picture. You know, this would look nice on your wall. I think he pops up at other points.
1: Yeah, well, actually, uh, the one that probably is worth mentioning is that it's right when Leland uh, comes back to the Mount Sinai Motel. That's when uh, he realizes that Laura's in that room, and he just storms out. And that's where Pierre Tremond just starts jumping around. Do you think there's a connection between that in particular to Philip Jeffries and uh, the vicinity that he's confined to?
0: Yeah, in the Vegas... Uh, I mean, what what are you thinking? But I think in the Vegas sense, there's a connection there, yeah.
1: It's coming back to what I was saying about the missing pieces, where if we're going with Philip Jeffries coming in 1989, that there's a connection between him appearing a week before Laura's death and also Bob being the one where it's... It, it, to me, it, like, when you see Bob... And then it cuts to Argentina, like him coming back. That this is Bob, kind of uh, basically uh, overpowering Philip Jeffries in this moment. And I think there's something about Leland finding out about who uh, who Laura is, where that's like a very major component of what like would set off the events of Teresa Banks being killed and a lot of the subsequent events we see in Firewalk with Me. So again, I'm just going with like you know I'm going with like the 1989 timeline of. That this heavily pertains to Laura, where Philip Jeffries is just as, and maybe in some cases, more associated with Laura than Cooper is. It's just that we never see them on screen together.
0: Yeah, and um, if we're talking about, you know, kind of parallel timelines, and we've seen that there's the the timeline where Laura dies, and there's the timeline where Laura doesn't die, which one can Philip see, or can he see both? Can you see uh you know an infinite number of possibilities of what might happen? you know? This is this is where uh, again it gets slippy in here. That's what that means. It's just like you cannot pin this stuff down once you're in the lodge. There's you you can't apply logic, it's dream logic. Uh and, and it's working on imagery and allusion and um suggestion. And surrealism in a huge way, you know, it's you can't really apply real world logic to what happens inside the Lodge. Uh, and it's the the interface between the Lodge entities and uh, the, in inverted commas, real world that causes the tension, the friction, the electricity that uh, the whole thing hinges on, I think.
1: Of course, this is totally subjective on my part, but I think of when Philip Jeffries, he says uh, to Cooper, he's like, say hello to Gordon. He will remember the unofficial version. And this is the last thing that, that Jeffries says before he sends Cooper back. I would say, presumably, he he like, he like may or may not have known that Cooper was going to go try and rescue Laura. So uh, it makes me think that if, if Jeffries is referring to Cole remembering the unofficial version, that there has to be a certain degree of uh, Jeffrey's thinking that there's a subjectivity of what's a definitive timeline versus what's not, and that Cole is very much tapped into an unofficial version. Hence, when we see in The Return, where he's always, like, a few steps behind of everything, like, it's right near the end when he's like, Dougie is Cooper? When did that happen? And uh, it just seems like, it seems like, for uh, as intelligent as Gordon is, even though actually he actually has an encounter with Laura... Uh, right when uh, Albert, uh knocks on the door and, Je- and Cole opens it. But I think these uh, that could be an insinuation of that Jeffrey's, at least in what we're seeing, is tapping into something much more than Cole is during this point. Because, you know, it's uh, Jeffrey seems to be omnipresent. He seems to be on... Even though he's saying it's slipper in here, he seems to know about these multiple different iterations of realities. And then we have Cole, where he just completely forgets about the Philip Jeffrey's encounter until not even the monica bellucci dream just talking about the Mo- monica bellucci dream out loud
0: yeah i also think Cole is as much of an adept um uh, kind of magician <laughs> as cooper as all of them and i think about you know the weird technology that uh mr c uses it's like what the hell is that mobile phone that he taps a number into and throws out the windows so, and what the hell is that uh, radio that he talks to Jeffrey on he, he seems to be the, like this kind of techno wizard that has machinery that i don't know what it does but so does gordon cole like when they when they're in the hotel in buckhorn his his room's full of like some weird surveillance equipment where did, one where did that all come from and two what the hell is it doing what what is he listening to and there's this whole thing about you know the hearing aid it's like he's tuned into some other dimensions, <laughs> and also uh, on a complete, complete tangent, really. But I just want to bring it up that I do think that Lil in Firework with me, my mother's sister's girl, and uh, the French woman in the Buckhorn uh, Hotel that he's having a light nice glass of wine with that takes ages to leave the room um, are tulpas that he's created. Uh, I think Gordon is is just as capable of creating tulpas as as Mr C is, and that's what they're fighting. They're fighting this kind of esoteric magical war in a way that we don't even understand. I just like the way because they're they're drinking like red wine, and it's like he's conjured this woman up as like this from the red wine. She's wearing a red dress, I think. It's like, she's she's the spirit of French red wine. <laughs> otherwise, well, also, it's just a hilarious scene. You know, and that's Lynch being Lynch. You know, you can have a joke that actually can be quite meaningful as well.
1: A lot of people seem to dismiss that scene. I always got a kick out of it, not yeah. because of the French woman herself, it's but it's it's the one moment where Albert, he can't really say anything without looking terrible. So, the whole time you just have this internal screaming. And then that's uh, when she leaves. He thinks he can finally talk about like what is very pressing business. That's when uh, Goran Cole has the turn up joke. It's like, yeah, her mother's daughter has gone kidnapped. And I told her that she'd turn up eventually. And Albert is not amused. And then uh, Goran has that bullet smile and says, she didn't get it either. Which that scene is like <laughs> the biggest laugh that I get every time I watch it. It's It's absolutely perfect on everyone's end. I think I've said everything on my end about Philip Jeffries, though. Like we've covered everything from his backstory, all of our feelings on the on the Philadelphia meeting, uh, the uh, Room above convenience store, uh, final dossier, Argentina, and season three. Was there anything else you had in mind in terms of where how Philip Jeffries coincides with the Twin Peaks universe, or even how David Bowie factors into it?
0: Yeah, got a couple of things. Um, I want to talk about Judy. <laughs> I want to talk about Judy because I went down this uh, kind of rabbit hole thinking, what the hell is? That? I mean, yes, you, you can interpret Judy as as being uh, Jao Day. You can interpret her as being Sarah Palmer, or the, or something that's uh, inhabiting Sarah Palmer. But you know, I was thinking, what that what's going on with, and particularly the way Bowie. I mean Bowie didn't write the line, but but the way he does it, and, I, and I'd I'd be very interested. I'll actually I'll come back to a quote that of uh, Bowie talking about how they and uh, Miguel Ferrer talking about how they filmed that scene, but just like playing around with the imagery. So Alec Jeffries uh, struck David Bowie. Apart from wearing that lovely white suit, which I'm homaging today by wearing a white suit, is also wearing red shoes, and I'm thinking is this a reference what's it a reference to is it a reference to anything is it a reference to the wizard of oz is it a reference to the ruby slippers is there no place like home <laughs> because uh, dorothy in the wizard of oz you know travels between worlds and then she has the red shoes which bring her home and dorothy in the wizard of oz in the movie is played by judy garland but we're not going to talk about judy but perhaps we are gonna talk about Garland Briggs. So if it's a reference to Judy now I'm gonna to have to apologize in advance here because this is the kind of thing I do sometimes, uh, which is just to riff on something and allow these references to happen. And I'm not for a minute saying, like I said at the beginning, I'm not for a minute saying this is a definitive take or I have discovered the secret. It's just a, a, a fun thing to think about. So is the reference to Judy Garland a code word for Garland Briggs? Is Judy Garland Briggs? So remember, Philip Jeffries may have been the FBI man tasked with surveillance at Blue Pine Ridge and have worked with Briggs. And we've been talking about the fact that, yeah, he's probably working with Briggs. Or is this a reference or homage via Bowie's deliberately unfocused accent to something else? There's another spurious vocalisation of of the name Judy, which is not so much these days, but back in the day, many uh, impersonators would do an impersonation of Cary Grant by going, Judy, Judy, Judy. Cary Grant was another English actor who was cast mainly in American movies. I did some research. Cary Grant never said, as is often the case with these quotes, Cary Grant never said, Judy, Judy, Judy. There's a, a movie called Only Angels Have Wings, where he says the name Judy quite a lot, because there's a character called Judy, but never three times in a row. And in interviews over the years, Cary uh, Grant has expressed kind of bemusement over the fact that impersonators, it's become the thing, you know, Judy, Judy, Judy. So he's often incorrectly quoted the same, Judy, 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 to Rita Hayworth, who plays a character called Judy. And this misquote is attributed to an impressionist called Larry Storch, who in the middle of one of his nightclub acts, saw Judy Garland walk in as he was impersonating Cary Grant (laughs) and said, Judy, Judy, Judy. And I'm just thinking, Bowie's very fond of doing voices. And was he like playing around with how he was going to do this line and suddenly came out with Judy, Judy, Judy. And either Mark Frost or David Lynch, or I don't, I can't remember who actually wrote that scene. May have just said, oh, we'll keep that. That's great, do that. And then that in its turn kind of forced Bowie to do this weird accent just a thought
1: on the topic of uh judy slash garland that does make me think uh not sure if this would uh, reaffirm or contradict it but there's that scene season two when major briggs makes his way to the sheriff station and he's completely delirious and there's that part where it's either sheriff truman or cooper it's like garland and he says judy garland i remember yes. on my first rewatch yes. i'm like i was like whoa whoa i i gotta write that down and so yeah. the, the thing you're t- saying about that, it just makes me think of that. I'm just thinking that, yeah, there's, uh, th- there's, there's definitely a strange connection that at least retroactively fits in that I think is absolutely fascinating.
0: Yeah, um, and i got another couple of things I want to go through very quickly if I can. Sarah Palmer... In The Return, there's that scene of her, uh, uh, talking about if she's Judy, or or possessed by Judy, there's that scene of her watching TV. And she's watching, uh, there's the box, um, is it a boxing match? Yeah, it's a boxing match she's watching, but she's also watching this, looks like a nature programme with some lion eating another, eating an antelope or something. There's a scene in uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth starring David Bowie in 1975 where the character he plays, Thomas Jerome Newton, is watching multiple TV screens. And he's watching uh, a a lion eating an antelope and saying, get out of my mind, leave me alone. Uh, I just wondered if that was an indirect reference to that. You were talking earlier about... uh, the occult and, and uh, esoteric connections. Um, Bowie was very interested in Alistair Crowley and dabbled a little bit in the occult at, at various times. Uh, you could look at Jeffries as, um, because he's a kind of messenger and travels between worlds, so you could look at him as Mercury or Hermes, uh, the god of, who I looked up, is the god of commerce, eloquence, messages, communication, including divination, travellers, boundaries, luck, trickery, and thieves. He also serves as a guide to souls uh, to the underworld. And Mercury's staff, uh, which is called or the Caduceus of Hermes, which is actually used now most often to denote uh, medical facilities. It's a uh, a stick with two stakes twirled around it uh originally uh we, Sally and I found these these old illustrations, and the two snakes were originally depicted as being like slightly above the stick and entwined in a figure eight, so there's the figure eight that uh Jeffrey's pumps out into steam, and then of course, yeah, I've mentioned before Jeffries' evolution to the kind of steam pump machine, yeah it could be a reference to tin machine Bowie's attempt to hide in plain sight in in a band. so the other thing I'd like to talk about is um the invisibles oh no before but just uh, fairy going from the esoteric to fairy tale so there's there's a number of parallels between twin Peaks uh, and uh, folktale or fairy tale and I think Sally in in her uh, Audrey horn episode uh, talked a little bit about her idea of like uh, Red Riding Hood and Audrey. And I'm looking at maybe Laura as Sleeping Beauty, that, to be awoken by Dale Cooper in his self-image of himself as this knight. And there are many stories in various cultures uh, of visits by mortals to fairyland where the man or woman is summoned to perform some service for some mysterious beings and uh, in some occult place. And, and it's often to take a message from this world or, or to bring a message back or else they're drawn into supernatural regions by curiosity, by invitation, or by some spell. And in some folk tales, i was looking at Grimm's fairy tales, there's there's stories of them um, made to believe that images of dead trees are living creatures. And importantly, to the mortal, uh, often the visit only seems to last a moment, but while in fairyland they're unconscious of the passage of time and on their return they find more time has passed and they realize that rip van winkle is a variation on that and then so you know jeffrey's you've been gone damn near two years and it was a dream we live inside a dream and i'll see you in 25 years and then what year is it there's a kind of inference that you know the black lodge is is fairyland and i don't mean you know tinkerbell it's a scary place i don't know if you've seen a tv show it's a british tv show uh adaptation of the book uh jonathan strange and mr norrell
1: oh sorry no that one i haven't seen
0: yeah it's about two uh kind of battling magicians but wizards in in the 18th century but there's a a whole scene where uh this girl is um enticed to fairyland by uh the king of the fairies and and um it's really horrible. She's made to dance. It's, it's like this ballroom scene. It's a bit like Labyrinth, actually, but she's forced to dance all night long. And then when she comes back, she can't tell anyone about it because when she tries to tell them, she just keeps coming up with, instead of saying, oh, I was kidnapped and taken to Fairyland, she says things like, there was a tailor and two other men and who made a bargain to make some fish. It's like she can only talk nonsense, and it's like this weird fairy tale that she's telling. Really beautifully done. It it's just makes the idea of going to fairyland not an enticing prospect at all. And finally, I think I want to talk about um, The Invisibles, if that's all right. Uh, so I'm going to go down a, a, a kind of esoterically obscure rabbit hole here, so you know, strap in. Um, So I want to draw attention to some weird parallels between the character of Philip Jeffries in Twin Peaks and that of a character called John Adreams in Grant Morrison's comic book series from the 1990s, The Invisibles. Now, coincidentally, Grant Morrison, like Lynch, um, enjoys inserting himself or at least an avatar of himself into his narratives. So just as Lynch appears as Gordon Cole uh, and arguably in some ways as Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks, So Morrison has written aspects of himself directly into many of his works. In The Invisibles, he depicts himself as an author called Kirk Morrison, whose alter ego, King Mob, is the leader of a cell of a secret organisation called the Invisible College. So The Invisibles is a comic book series published by Vertigo at DC uh, from 1994 to 2000. It was uh, created and written by Scottish writer Grant Morrison drawn by various artists. Um, Clearly, it was published a little after seasons one and two of Twin Peaks, so I'm not suggesting that Morrison plagiarized the show for his comic, not at all. The two are quite different in tone. It's more that both works end up dealing with similar concerns, apart from it being regularly cited as an influence on the Wachowski Brothers' Matrix movies. I think the The Invisibles contains a number of parallels with Twin Peaks both the original two seasons and remarkably, it seems to predict events that will be depicted two decades later in the third season, The Return. The Invisibles is full of pop culture references, nods to political agit art movements such as the Situationists, as well as being grounded and inspired by Morrison's own explorations into arcane beliefs and occult practices, much like Mark Cross and David Lynch's esoteric interests, color the text of Twin Peaks. In the comic, uh, the Invisibles are a secret organ. I'm going to simplify it. The Invisibles are a secret organization that use occult magic and various forms of transcendental meditation, which allows them a crude form of time travel to fight against the physical and psychic oppression of a cadre of interdimensional entities known as the Archons of the Outer Church. It's not hard to draw a parallel between the Invisibles and the Blue Rose Task Force and between the Archons of the Outer Church and the Black and White Lodges. There are coinciding references to Alistair Crowley, Jack Parsons, Roswell, as well as the usual grab bag of 1990s conspiracy tropes like Men in Black, Area 51, Project Blue Book. Most strikingly, in Volume 2, Issue 4, published in 1997, Morrison shows in muted monochrome drawn by artist Phil Jimenez, a sequence depicting the atomic bomb test at White Sands, including Oppenheimer saying, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. It then shows the atomic blast opening a rupture in the universe, allowing the incursion of a silvery globular entity, which bears a striking resemblance to the mother Jow Day sequence in episode eight of The Return. This entity is described in The Invisibles as a fallen angel, a god trapped in its own creation. The shockwaves of its entry reverberating backwards and forwards and sideways through space-time, causing all the ills, assassinations and slavery of human history. As one character says, you can feel it on the edge of your bad dreams. Philip Jeffries, after he's entered the Black Lodge, can inhabit dreams. In Morrison's comic, Jonah Dreams is one of the more mysterious characters, most relevantly perhaps for us. He has styled blonde hair and always wears a white suit. He was once a major operative among the Invisibles. He vanishes while working on an assignment in Philadelphia investigating an occult ritual. We encounter him again later in the story, by which time he has seemingly turned and become an agent of the sinister outer church. But John of Dreams never truly betrays the Invisibles. He skillfully manoeuvres the major players of both sides into positions they need to be in, just like Philip Jeffries manoeuvres Mr. C and Cooper. Morrison introduces the idea that the reality we experience is just a game played in five-dimensional space and observed by higher-dimensional beings and that one can leave and re-enter the game as different characters by inhabiting what he calls a fiction suit. John of explains that the Philadelphia experience sent him into a, a machine that allowed him to see and move behind the illusion of linear time. At one point, he says that John of Dreams is a complex structure. Grant Morrison has stated that John is like a midwife for the world as it moves towards birth and that one should always look for the white suit. As other characters in the series also occasionally wear white suits. So a major revelation occurs in the narrative when we realise, along with John, that the character of John of Dreams is just a fiction suit, and he may also have played other characters across multiple realities, including our own. To get an idea of this kind of meta-narrative scale, imagine what it would be like in Twin Peaks if the character of Philip Jeffries wakes from his back lodge fever dream, but not only realises that he's a character in a movie, but also realizes that he has also been Ziggy Stardust and the Thin White Duke and a bunch of other characters in realities he can scarcely comprehend, while also glimpsing an over reality where all of these identities are just stories. And he's a rock star actor called David Bowie. This is like Gordon's Monica Bellucci dream in Twin Peaks, when Monica Bellucci says, We are like the dreamer who dreams and lives inside the dream. But who is the dreamer? And also the Audrey's dance scene in episode fifteen of the Return, when Audrey Horne wakes up in a in another reality. You know, as I said, I'm not saying Grant Morrison ripped off Twin Peaks. I just think that uh, probably Mark, Mark Frost and Lynch and Grant Morrison are dealing in similar areas. And have come to similar conclusions, and uh, but it's very interesting that the, 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 you know, there's this character, this blonde character in a white suit that you know becomes a machine <laughs> and exists in various realities, lives in a dream, and it's called John of dreams, which is a uh, a reference from Hamlet, which uh, Hamlet's soliloquy, Act Two, Scene Two. Had he the motive and cue for passion that I have, he would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties, yet a dull and muddy metal rascal peak like John of Dreams of my cause. Oh, wow. Uh, so, I don't know, you can go down so many rabbit holes with Twin Peaks. Yeah, and as we were talking earlier about uh, Grant Morrison's ongoing feud with Alan Moore, that's an interesting... Thing to think about they, uh, and alan moore deals in in very similar realms they're both wizards uh Gromos is into kind of chaos magic and alan moore as far as i'm aware is more into kind of very traditional kind of rowley-esque magic
1: i think we're uh winding down on this episode uh was there anything you want to plug in terms of any magic uh that you're going to be performing within the year or anything that people can find you on social
0: media yeah uh you can find me uh On Twitter, uh, Anton Binder Magic. uh, That's A-N-T-O-N-B-I-N-D-E-R, Magic. You can find me on Facebook, Anton Binder. You can go online and look up cherrytophat.com, which is uh, myself and Sally's company where we're going to be, nothing much on there in a the moment, but there's lots of links to stuff that I do and stuff that Sally does. But eventually it's going to be stuff that we're both doing together. We've got lots of plans to do more um, stage shows. At the moment, I've just moved to Copenhagen to be with my wife. I'm not allowed to work until uh, they've processed my application for a work permit, So I can't do any work, not even voluntary. But as soon as I've got permission, I'll be doing some magic shows in Copenhagen, possibly in London, Brighton, Edinburgh, or other parts of Europe. Uh, We've got a couple of plans. One is to revive the show that I did last year, which is called The Secrets of Jack Roulette, which is, uh, as I said, a very Lynchian kind of mood piece. And then we've got this new show that we're working on called Ghostlight, which is um, a kind of recreation of an Edwardian seance wherein strange things happen whilst we're... Proving that we don't have magic powers and we're not psychic. Nevertheless, weird things are happening on stage. That's in development at the moment. Uh, and again, as like uh, Jet Roulette, that will have uh, a combination of live uh, magic, live uh, narrative, and uh, a filmed, uh, an element of pre-filmed work, where the, and the, a big element of the two interacting with each other. And that, that's what we're really interested in.
1: But yeah, no, I want to thank you for coming on. You provide a lot of great insight through uh, the lens of uh, Philip Jeffries, David Bowie, Grant Morrison, a lot of great stuff out there. So I want to thank you, Anton.
0: Yeah. Uh, no, well, I, I did have this quote from David Bowie that could quite slip in about what he felt about playing the part. Yeah, I forgot that. Um, so Philip, um, David Bowie says, Philip Jeffries is an agent who has either been dead for eight years or else took a long leave of absence and forgot to check in. My character is an intensely over upholder of the law. He has seen too much and has little ability to do much about it. Not dissimilar to the perspective of a rock god, really. Uh, oh, and he has, yeah, sorry, he has somebody else here. He says, from the Seattle Times, uh, he says, they crammed me in. I did all my scenes in four or five days because I was in rehearsals for the 1991 Tin Machine Tour. In fact, Bowie stole a part of Jeffrey's costume. I've worn his belt a few times on stage with Tim Machine. It consists of two rather garish portraits of Frida Kahlo, a very now item. I'm hoping it will lead to a court case producing massive exposure on CNN. Otherwise, I'll sell it to the highest binner, probably Madonna. And he describes working with David Lynch as like watching a 14-year-old who's been given permission to rearrange the world for eight weeks invigorating. I highly recommend working with David. He's delightfully bonkers."
1: Yeah, and if I remember Bowie would actually refer to him as Mr. Lynch like the whole time on Satch.
0: Oh, well Bowie's, Bowie's always very polite.
1: I always like hearing stuff about Bowie behind the scenes because uh they, there's always like a lot of great stories. Because I, I one of the last things I guess I'll mention is that I remember hearing, I think it was uh, it was either in Fire Walk Me or Lord Disappeared or it might have been The Essential Wrapped in Plastic, but I remember, a big component was that Kyle McLaughlin did not want to come back for Fire Walk with Me for a variety of reasons. Lynch knew that Mikhail was a huge fan of David Bowie and thought, "Oh, maybe this will be a thing that could like give him that big push." Honestly, I, I'm glad that they did because Bowie has that larger than life personality, which fits for a character like Philip just to the T. There's
0: a there's a quote here from Miguel Ferrer uh, Albert where he says, uh, "David Lynch is as much a fan as he is an artist." I remember we were doing the movie. As a scene with carl mclaughlin i think david was in the scene i was in the scene and david bowie was in the scene david was just about to roll camera and he came over to me he always called me albert he never called me miguel he said hey albert i said hey dave he said that's david bowie i said yeah i know <laughs> david says pretty cool huh And then he rolled camera and we did the scene. But, you know, that's David. He was just incredibly impressed by the fact David Bowie was right there. And I love that about him.
1: Oh, I'm really glad that you put that out there. But, um, no, like I said, I want to thank you for coming on. Like, you brought in a lot of great insight to a character that definitely required a lot of work to go through.
0: Thank you, Colin. It's been an absolute delight Uh, I'll have to think of if I can think of another character I'd like to talk about, uh, I will. And I know you're going to have Sally, my wife, on uh, talking about Diane soon. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, everyone, hope you have a great day.
1: Together,
0: forever.